Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. Hey, social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. (laughs) Howdy, Mark Kenny here, and I really appreciate you giving me your time because uh, I think today you're going to be very glad that you did so. I'm delighted to welcome back the Asian City Morning Herald's North America correspondent, Matthew Knott. Welcome, Matthew. Hi, Mark. It's great to be back. Yes, it's really good to talk after a pretty tumultuous several months, of course. When we had you on before, um, you'd had that extraordinary death-defying accident and you were in that recovery phase, having fallen off a building, which was uh, you know, a, a remarkable story and uh, a very, very, uh, very much intriguing our listeners. Um, and I remember talking to you around that time, one of the things you were very concerned about uh, in the aftermath of that accident as you were recovering was that you weren't you know, uh, sort of pulled out and taken back to Australia for your recovery because you were desperate, as any good journalist is, uh, to cover the big story that was looming, which of course was the US election. I guess uh, it's a fairly sort of general ballpark sort of question to open up with, but I presume you think that was worth it, that you, you stuck there and, uh, and, and stayed there for that big story. Oh, definitely. Very, very much. Uh, Things happened. It was much more dramatic than I even expected. You know, I just thought it was going to be about whether Trump gets reelected or whether Biden wins. But then it turned into such a bigger deal in terms of uh, election night. You remember it was going on for days. uh, Trump making quite outrageous claims that he'd won when he didn't. and, And it just went on for months, which was completely unprecedented. And then, of course, Uh, Just when it seemed like it was all ending the January 6th insurrection, I was down there speaking to the people for that. So it turned out to be an even more wild election and the aftermath of the election than I'd expected. So I'm definitely glad that I hung around. Yeah, massive story. I mean, one one of the biggest political stories 
when you when you put all those things together um, that anyone's likely to cover in in their lifetime and their career as a journalist. I was just thinking before we came uh, before we started this conversation. Um, as you say, it wasn't just January sixth, the, the Capitol insurrection, but there was you know in the lead up to it, Trump's mishandling of, of COVID. His, his campaign itself, which was you know high energy but uh, very idiosyncratic and you know full of all the bombast that we'd come to know of him, there was Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death uh, and what that meant for the Supreme Court. That of course led to the, the, the that that extraordinary rose garden ceremony, which turned out to be a sort of a super spreader event, and of course that led on to the president himself having COVID, which was. Uh, you know, just another big story. And and then, as you say, there was all of the argy-bargy over the election, the election week, really, rather than the election night and uh, and the constant denial leading up to uh, that massive, uh, massive situation that, uh, that occurred in January 6th. And then that, of course, and I'll, I'll ask you about January 6th in a moment, just because, uh, you know, you were there and it's certainly worth getting your, your first-hand impressions of it. But the other point to make, of course, is that that then had a very material effect on the Georgia runoff, and we saw the um, you know the, the result there, which actually delivered the Democrats uh, that cru- crucial two seats that they needed to get to fifty with the uh, or fifty one with the um, um, you know the support of the Speaker, the Vice President. I'm getting kind of mildly traumatic flashbacks <laughs> to all these 1am tweets and uh, things that were happening late at night and sudden events. But yeah, when you put it like that, it certainly has been uh, a lot. Yeah, and absolutely wild ride. And, and you said you were um, you were there at uh, in Washington uh, around the Capitol at the time of the insurrection. You, you spoke to people? Yeah, it was a huge crowd. I, I must admit, I didn't foresee how... Uh, violent it would become. I'd been to lots of Trump rallies and I remember telling my editors back home who were a little bit worried because in some senses this had been a foreshadowed that so many people would be coming to Washington for this event. And I said, look, I've been to so many Trump rallies and I've spoken to these people and uh, they might believe that the election was rigged, but, you know, they're they're not inherently violent. Most of them, they're just going to show up and wave some flags and head back and have lunch. And that's what some people did, but some people really took matters into their own hands. Yeah, I was I was shocked by the amount of people who were there. I was shocked by how far people had come. People had travelled from New Mexico, Texas, the other side of the country, California for this event. And I was really struck talking to people at the the protest or the Stop the Steal rally, it was called, how deeply they uh, believed what Trump said how much they did not believe anything that the media said refuting uh, the, the claims that the election had been stolen. Uh, and, yeah, then, then came back to uh, write up the story and write up the certification of the results and things started turning incredibly uh, violent there as so many people stormed into that building, again, which I'd been into many times and was similar to the Australian Parliament, very secure, there's no way you can get in without a, a pass. There's always lots of uh, police there. So the sight of people just tipping over those tiny fences and, and barging in was totally extraordinary. Yeah, it was an amazing day. 
And you, you mentioned that um, most of the people you spoke to um, around the periphery of it, particularly, were you know essentially peaceful. Though they were they were upset about the result. They believed Trump's line that the march itself, as you say, was called "Stop the Steal," which is pretty inflammatory um, itself. Yeah. It doesn't take an awful uh, you know, a lot of imagination to imagine how someone who is at a rally called Stop the Steal could be moved to even greater anger because it, it's, you know, it, it sort of sums it up right there as, as if there's some massive miscarriage of justice that has gone on. But, but what in your mind, you know, did, did the, what role did the president play? I mean, because this is a, a, you know, a critical element of all of this, the, the, the rhetoric that he used when he uh, addressed the crowd. Um, inviting them to march down to the Capitol and all of, all of that. I mean, if you've got people at a rally, you've got them angry, and then you tell them, you know, we don't win anything by weakness. We have to show strength. We have to go down there and and stop this, um, or whatever the you know the exact words were. It mm. was was some of those people you th- that, that you might have spoken to, or the or the types of people that you spoke to were they. In, in the end, were they some of those people that got so revved up that they went and enacted violence? Yeah, I, I don't know whether these people specifically made it into uh, the building, but I can see how uh, it takes the absolute most hardcore, really militant people to perhaps break down those barriers and get past the police, but then uh, people get caught up in the, the feeling of the day and will go along with uh, things that they would never have imagined uh, they would have done because they deeply believed uh, these these false claims about the election being stolen. And, and that, what you're getting at, was a really crucial issue in Trump's uh, impeachment trial. That was something we didn't even mention. That yeah, was the second, yeah. the second impeachment trial a, a, almost exactly a year after the first. And this was an issue that came up. And, and my personal thought is that I'd compare him to kind of a reckless, drunk, driver i don't think he foresaw exactly what was going to happen he didn't specifically say go and uh go and storm into the capital uh, but he had spouted off these uh lies really for months and created quite a foreseeable situation that people would be angry and take matters into their own hands up till that point i've been amazed at how peaceful things had been given what trump had been saying so I don't think he directly instructed them to do it, but he created the atmosphere and, uh, you know, gave them the desire to to do that. And do you think the authorities really fully understood the potential for it to get that violent? I mean, was it, was it underestimated? Yeah, definitely, and that still hasn't been resolved. Unfortunately, the issue of some kind of nine eleven style commission into the day hasn't gotten off the ground. It became very partisan with how it should be run. But that would be uh, really, really useful. Uh, There have been Senate and House hearings into this, but we still don't have a great answer about why there was such a lack of preparation. Now, not everyone foresaw exactly what would happen, but it was widely known that there was this was going to be a big day. Trump himself had said it's going to be wild. So many uh, people there and hyped up. It was a massive failure of intelligence gathering, of policing. Uh, the fact that there just wasn't, uh, you know, more uh, deployments, you know, literally more police officers there, let, let alone a better form of a barrier. 
uh, because, yeah, what we saw how easy it was for people to get into this supposedly secure and fortified place. And we'd seen actually quite a bit of publicity before then about the sort of uh, barricading areas of, of Washington ahead of it. So it wasn't like wasn't like they didn't know about it. They knew about it but just underestimated it, it seems. And I read the other day that uh, uh, just in the last few days they've been uh, installing bulletproof doors in the House of Representatives, um, which I think is a, you know, kind of at one level I guess you'd just say, well, that's inevitable security response, but it's a terrible metaphor to think that the representatives have to be shielded from the people they represent by bulletproof doors in this supposedly sophisticated yeah. democracy. And, and we don't know exactly where it's going to land, but there had been, it was only just in recent weeks that some of the fencing had started coming down because it's a new administration and things had been a calm. And people were saying, yeah, this has been a bit of a, a not an overreaction in the moment, but there's not a need for this anymore. Um, allow people to have more access to really what is the people's house to Congress. Uh, and then just a few days ago, at the end of last week, I had this uh, police officer killed in this really bizarre incident just near the Capitol again. So That was with a car, right? That, yeah, with the car and, and only with a, with a knife, you know, mm. not with a gun, given how widespread guns are in America. But the fact that an, another incident has happened just near the Capitol even some uh, people who initially resisted it are thinking that there's going to have to be a lot more security, perhaps some kind of permanent f- fencing going on in the future. So when a travel from Australia is allowed again, it may not be the same easy access that you would have once had as a tourist here, being able to walk right up to the US Capitol building, which is a beautiful marble structure. Yes, I've been in it uh, also, and uh, it's... Um yeah, really extraordinary, and and it was just the, the the pictures of people clambering up the walls, you know, using the um, uh, the, the the I guess the the grout lines or whatever you'd call them in the amongst the stones to to climb up walls, and and it it really did it, it, that was that was um kind of the visual expression of of a, of a building besieged right there, and really quite extraordinary to think that that happened after an election, which was in the end quite decisive. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's what you can do, I guess. Now, one of the things that uh, Trump, you know, thought he was very clever about uh, all the way through was was branding Biden Sleepy Joe Biden. And there was a lot of commentary about Biden, you know, campaigning from his basement. And, of course, Biden often appeared in a mask. And we know he's not a young man. And, uh, and you know, he, 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 he sort of... Um, it, it all of that sort of played into the idea of Sleepy Joe, but that's not the impression we get from uh, from his administration now. And in fact, I noticed that Paul Kelly in the Australian today is saying the joke's really on Trump because there's nothing low energy about uh, the way Biden's going about um, his 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 agenda. Yeah, this is still a theme uh, in uh, conservative media among conservative politicians. Uh, this idea of Biden have being not only sleepy, but you will hear it said that it, that he's essentially a senile or has dementia. This was something that was raised during the campaign and is still a big theme on uh, Fox News. The idea that Kamala Harris is really the one running the administration and Biden is just this figurehead. It's something that to me has been disproved many times again. Now, Biden is not uh, the most fluent speaker. He does stumble 
uh, quite a bit and it's easy to cut little clips that show him saying the wrong thing, wrong numbers, wrong dates, uh, giving people the wrong title, sometimes forgetting names. Uh, but uh, we saw him in the debates during the campaign where against Trump where he did pretty well and most people said that he won both those debates. He's given uh, speeches. He's now held one uh, press conference where he did uh, pretty well and went toe-to-toe with the media. So I just don't see any evidence of that. He's certainly out there uh, less than Trump in terms of uh, sparring uh, with the media. Uh, he is, but he, he does regular uh, events each day. And in terms of policy, particularly, his administration has been a very active and uh, much more ambitious and much more progressive, I think, than even uh, more left-leaning Democrats had hoped for. Yeah, that's really one of the extraordinary things about it, isn't it? That he's he's um, he seems to be seizing this moment, uh, and there are parallels being drawn with FDR in the Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 30s. Um, and using the the coronavirus and the recession associated with it and all of the dysfunction to reboot America and to bring America back into a um, into a uh, a position of greatness, but without this sort of hollow boast of Trump, he's, he's he, Biden seems to be going about that. I mean, two of the key things he's doing he's he's passed had passed the one point nine trillion dollar coronavirus package. Uh, rescue package that there was a lot of argy bargy about that, a lot of discussion about whether it was ex- it was excessive. But he's got that through, and now he has this other plan, which is really quite extraordinary: a two trillion dollar infrastructure uh, plan, which is very comprehensive and and contains a lot of very strong sort of uh, social parameters within it. Yes, and he's doing things that are very very popular. That's the thing is that uh, he is uh, pursuing policies that are very, very ambitious and uh, progressive, but are realistic in terms of getting through Congress, which even though the Democrats have a majority in the Senate is not easy, you can't just snap your fingers and get everything you'd want. So you have to pick your battles in terms of what what can we get done? And is it popular? The COVID relief bill, the first one was by modern standards in this really partisan, polarised country, was incredibly popular, Uh, perhaps not surprisingly in terms of people really love getting sent uh, checks in the mail or having uh, 1400 US dollars drop into their bank account. They they love that. Uh, And some of the measures in there were, were super popular. And now he's doing infrastructure, which, again, across Republicans and Democrats, the idea of spending money on infrastructure is really popular. I saw a poll out today which showed uh, over 70% support for this uh, second plan, uh, despite it being quite possible it, just like the first one, won't gain a single uh, Republican vote. But it really is expansive. Uh, It involves the traditional uh, infrastructure aspects that you would think of in terms of uh, funding uh, roads and bridges and, and highways and airports. Um, anyone who's been to America and seen some of the airports here, has seen some of the roads, it is quite noticeable that infrastructure has not been adequately funded here. But then there's also a lot of money for broadband, uh, a big emphasis on uh, climate change and things like electric vehicles uh, and 
yeah, so really broadening the idea of what infrastructure is. And he's even going to follow this up a bit later with a second part, which is much more focused on uh, the social side uh, in terms of healthcare, paid family leave. So he's doing big things, but they're things that are broadly popular, even if Republicans aren't coming on board with them. We'll just take a quick break and we'll come back and talk a bit more about this because the politics of this is really fascinating. Back in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. Now, before the break, we were just talking about uh, this massive infrastructure plan that Joe Biden is rolling out, and has it has so many different elements. Matthew, you said that there's a possibility that it won't get any more votes than the coronavirus um, rescue package. The I think it was a $2.5 trillion package in Australian dollars, one9 in, in US dollars, so you know, absolutely massive amount of money there. And this infrastructure package is of the same scale; it's even a bit bigger, I think. You said that it might not get uh, that, that that first one didn't get any Republican votes, um, but this one, uh, you know, Biden is a, a long term member of the Senate. He's, he's been around Washington for a long time. He's known to be very popular. He's known to be a very good negotiator, and he's going to have cash to hand out to states. Surely some of those Republicans are going to follow the money and say, well, I'll, I'll, um, I'll secure this for my state, this big infrastructure project. That, that, that could change the politics of it, could it not? You would think so, and that traditionally would be the way that it would work, would be senators from particular states are trying to get something for their state. You know, if it's a great new bridge or a new airport uh, for their state, the problem is going to be the big divider that is about how he's going to pay for it. Mm. Uh, kind of to Biden's credit, uh, he's not just putting it on the credit card and funding it by debt. He has proposed paying for this by raising the corporate tax rate uh, from 21% to 27%. Now, that's really unpopular with Republicans. That rate got slashed under Donald Trump uh, with the support of most Republican senators. So in particular, they're opposed to a paying for infrastructure or any of these things through uh, tax increases. They just don't want to do that. And then some of the added elements in Biden's plan, uh, they don't like or are less resistant to or, or find it easier to attack. For example, the 
more climate-related measures. Mm. That's a bit of a trigger word on the right. The idea of paying for things that that are green is not a popular on places like Fox News. So I think you'll hear a lot of a Republican senators saying, oh, we agree with roads and bridges, but we don't agree with everything else, and we don't agree with raising uh, taxes on business to pay for this. It puts them in a bit of an ideological bind, the right, though, because uh, they don't agree with borrowing money to to do these sorts of things. Uh, they, they like to think they're fiscal conservatives. They like to think that uh, such in public investments should be funded out of revenue and that revenue should therefore, um, you know, they, they don't just become intergenerational debt. Uh, so, you know, the fact that the Democrats have come up with a way, that the Biden administration has come up with a way of paying for this, um, I guess that's going to put a lot of Republicans at odds with their corporate donors. Their donors are going to say, you can't support this because we, you know, we supported your campaign. We're about to get a massive tax increase to fund this. You support it. We're not going to support you. Um, you know, so I suppose there'll be, um, you know, pressure applied on both sides. But, you know, you said, for example, you, you cited before about uh, a number of infrastructure uh, needs that are there, you know, roads and bridges that are run down, airports that need building or replacing or refurbishing uh, and there's and there's there's a lot of that uh, when you move around the United States and a lot of that is because there has been as there is in in Australia but but particularly strongly in the US there has been this sort of low tax agenda you know all the time so everyone's bidding down the tax rate all the time everybody's talking about taxes being bad and of course there's no money for for upkeep of, of infrastructure and uh, it really is showing and that's what Biden's trying to address. Well, and it was the first thing that many people expected Trump to do. I mean, he was not a traditional uh, low-spending Republican. He loved, in theory, the idea of doing something big on infrastructure. You could imagine perhaps some things almost having his name on it like a, like a hotel or casino, uh, but it never <laughs> happened because there was this resistance in the party to uh, spending money on it and uh, he didn't find a way to make it happen. I just think he wasn't familiar enough with the policy levers to get it done, whereas Biden has come in with this plan. Um, yeah, as, as you're saying, the, the debt went up a lot under Trump, uh, but it is noticeable here how little uh, concern there is about it. It's just not a big part of the public discussion. I'm thinking back to uh, the early days in the Abbott government, which you remember, which was all about de- debt and deficit disaster and how this was driving the whole national conversation. We need to get the debt down for future generations and we need to cut all this spending. Uh, that is just not a part of the discussion here for better or worse. Many people are worried about how big the debt is getting. You know, some economists, particularly even some a more democratic economists, are worried about the sheer amount of money that Biden is spending. But even on the right, that is not an animating uh, force right now, uh, the the debt. Uh, it's just not something Americans are particularly worried about. They were happy to get their uh, $1,400 check and they would be happy to have the new uh, highway or bridge in their area and that's something to worry about another day for now. Yeah, well, uh, I guess the debt and deficit is uh, is always going to be a thing in politics. It, it, it it's funny that uh, it was such a big thing in Australia, as you say, in 2013, in the early days of uh, of, of the Abbott government. But um, 
debt and deficit's quite considerably greater now. And I suppose yes. American voters, like Australian voters, have more primary concerns on their minds. You know, the coronavirus, the state of the economy, the the the, the possibilities for the future. You know, the exigencies of now have um have come along and really really sort of trumped a lot of that. I'd be very interested to hear your impression on this question. Does America feel as divided as it did in the sort of, you know, climax of the Trump period and, and, and around that election? Is there a sense that, because you, you, you spoke before about how the Republicans seem, you know, no more likely to be, you know, coming across the aisle to vote for, even for something that might be very popular like infrastructure, but um, what about the general electorate? Uh, is the fact no one's really that animated about debt a function of the fact that politics itself has sort of come off the boil? The, yeah, that's what I was going to say, was the temperature has come down. Uh, Biden, by any stretch, is not uh, beloved by uh, everybody. Uh, most uh, Republicans would uh, still prefer uh, Trump and, and some independents. You know, historically speaking, uh, he's, his approval rating's kind of in the mid 50s, which is fine, but he's not the most popular uh, president ever. But there's not the same uh, intensity and frenzy uh, that you had under Trump. Uh, you know, there's a, there's concerns on the right uh, about what's happening at the border. Um, lots of uh, migrants are coming or showing up from Mexico, uh, things like that. There's a lot of uh, culture war issues uh, going on. Uh, so there are things that uh, people dislike about Biden and his administration and what they're doing, uh, but it is not the same level of politics dominating every aspect of life and shaped around the individual, the, the personality of a single individual as it was with uh, Trump. There's a bit more space for uh, discussions about other things, talk about policy, I think soon as if the vaccine rollout keeps going well, you know, people will be happy to be talking about sport and culture and other things again. So, yeah, while this is still a polarised country, I think the the divide is just not quite as heated right now and that's been a deliberate decision of Biden to uh, not appear all the time, not to talk about Trump, not to tweet, not to provoke the other side necessarily. So, yeah, the, the temperatures come down a bit, which was definitely welcome. And that's probably one of the reasons why there isn't quite the appetite for that January 6, um, sort of uh, September 11-style commission as well. It's perhaps not in the uh, best political interests of the Biden administration to be reliving the worst days of Trump and to be having you know, all the divisiveness, you know, animating all that divisiveness all the time into into the future. It was it was interesting to see that Biden was a, was was reasonably equivocal, I think, even on the, the impeachment um, uh, when it was around, just because th they didn't want the new administration to be, you know, knee deep in the in the muck of the previous one. You mentioned uh, the, uh, the the vaccine rollout, and you said uh, if it keeps going well, it is going extraordinarily well. I mean, in Australia here, we're we're, we're operating at at sort of snail's pace. Um, the whole system feels like it's buffering or something. You know, there's uh, we, we were meant to have four million vaccinated by the end of March. Uh, didn't even get to a million. America has actually been averaging three million a day uh, vaccinated. 
This is a remarkable yeah. turnaround for a country that absolutely muffed under Trump the, the pandemic response, but Biden has placed such a priority on getting this um, vaccine rollout happening on, on, on putting all of those arrangements into place. That must be a very strong factor in, in both building support for his uh, administration, but also facilitating those, th- those other discussions you were talking about, the ability to talk about sport and culture and the economy and all those other things. Yeah, it's, it's an absolutely huge deal. You know, that is the animating force uh, right now is the, the vaccine rollout. And that's, I think, is coming up to his, his 100 days, which he himself has made a big deal of, all the things he wanted to accomplish in his first 100 days. And he set these targets, which were uh, probably very much under-promising and over-delivering, but he's going to have a lot of things to point to uh, there in a couple of weeks when he hits 100 days in terms of the vaccine rollout and how well it is going. Yeah, they hit uh, 4 million uh, vaccine doses in a single day over mm. the weekend, which is, uh, which is pretty uh, extraordinary. Like so many things in America, it's uh, been kind of complicated. It's very different in different states. At the start, there was some unfairness and confusion about who could get it and who couldn't. It's not a centralized scheme like they have in the UK, but it is uh, working in terms of getting people vaccinated. I think uh, three quarters of uh, senior citizens over 65 have been vaccinated. So even though cases have been rising a bit, there is a hope that it won't produce the hospitalizations and deaths that we saw in the past. Uh, unfortunately, for people like me who live in Washington, D.C., the capital is, has a particularly bad uh, rollout here for some complicated reasons, in part to do with the fact that this is uh, a district and not a state and the people who live in uh, other states coming in and getting it. Uh, so I haven't been able to get one yet, but if I was living in New York, everyone who's over 30 can go and get one. Uh, most p- friends that I know there who are in their early 30s have been able to get uh, the vaccine in some states already. If you're over 16, you're eligible to get it, and it's relatively easy to get at uh, pharmacies or mass vaccination centers, and it is ramping up a very... Uh, dramatically and very quickly. Uh, So it has given me faith, you know, uh, particularly as journalists, you know, we're often focusing on uh, the bad news, on things that are going wrong, on mass shootings, and the coronavirus has been out of control here. But this has restored my faith a bit that America can achieve big things and get things done, the fact that the vaccine rollout has worked. Is there a danger of too much optimism? I noticed uh, you wrote a, a very interesting piece uh, from a, from a um, trip you did to New York to talk to uh, people in the nightclub entertainment industry there and some really harrowing stories of uh, personal stories of what happened to some of those venues and um, uh, you know, but the, but the country's now coming into into better weather. It's in springtime and um, you know the, the vaccination rollout, as you say, is going gangbusters. Um, there must be some fears, though, that uh, people might get ahead of themselves. I, I think that has already happened uh, because things were going so well in terms of cases coming down. And then uh, the good news about the vaccines, uh, better weather, sheer exhaustion uh, with 
uh, with not being able to uh, see your friends, with not being able to go out and socialize, you know, at a bar or a restaurant. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people have just had enough, particularly younger people. Uh, it might have happened anyway, even if there weren't the vaccine. So it is some uh, places are perhaps reopening a bit too uh, early. Um, you know, mask rules, particularly, uh, it's not uh, the biggest deal in the world to have to wear a mask. So some states have taken that down. Uh, but the the saving grace is that the most vulnerable people are getting vaccinated. So that's going to be the difference to the past surges that we saw here that resulted in up to 3,000 deaths a day. It seems extremely unlikely, if not impossible, that we would see anything like that again, uh, given uh, how many older people, how many people who have pre-existing conditions have already been vaccinated. So that's the good news. Yeah, well, that is good news, although in New York City they've had, I think, 31,000 deaths and they're getting um, 4,000 new infections uh, a day at the moment. So that, that's an uptick, isn't it? So it, it's definitely something the authorities must be very concerned about. Yeah, yeah. And so it's mostly uh, younger people who are who are getting it. You know, some will have long-term symptoms mm. after they recover from a COVID, which isn't good at all. But uh, yeah, there's been a lot of impatience here from the get-go. I think you, you remember Trump talking about last Easter, things will be reopened again. And that was a whole year ago. Uh, and even in places like New York, you know, there has been a very uh, politicized response to this differences between Republicans and Democrats. But I was a bit shocked uh, in New York, yeah, how many people wanted to go uh, into uh, a basement that's not very v- ventilated and to uh, sing Broadway tunes, which is not something that Anthony Fauci would be recommending. <laughs> uh, and this is a very democratic, progressive city where they wear masks and take COVID seriously, supposedly. But I think the, the vibe was that things are getting better and we've had enough. Well, I don't think you can get it from show tunes, though. I think that's the, uh, you know, that's the, that's the get out of jail clause there. <laughs> Maybe if it was heavy metal, you could. <laughs> <laughs> just before we let you go, um, two questions. One on just quickly on the vaccine. What's your impression of Australia looking back at your home country and, and that the vaccine rollout here? Is it? Is are you surprised at how slowly it's going? Yeah, uh, I, it's such a different dynamic, of course, given that there's so little uh, COVID mm. in Australia. Here, there was this feeling that uh, a week makes a big difference. You know, if the, if the vaccine is approved one week, you can be saving thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of lives. Uh, and it's had that really uh, clear relationship between vaccines and, and death rates. Uh, but yeah, I've been, I was surprised, I think up till now, almost up till today, uh, how blase people seemed about how slow the rollout was compared to countries like the UK and the US. Countries that have really performed poorly. We performed well in the pandemic. And, And, you know, we like to talk about punching above our weight and uh, beating the world. Mm. And in terms of reopening and allowing borders to come back and the fact that Australia is going into winter, uh, uh, over recent weeks I have been saying, I'm surprised that there's not more frustration, there's not more questioning that it's not a bigger news story and i think that is starting to change now it's starting to get more of a focus 
Yeah, I think that's right. Final question on the uh, the climate summit that Biden is uh, hosting uh, later this month, I think, 22nd and 23rd of this month. How big is it? This is a big deal. Again, Biden is really emphasising a climate which people who are active in that space and people who are progressive are really happy about how uh, ambitious he is. He's going to announce, I'd say, before the summit, even before April 22nd, a new uh, climate target for America, which is expected to be ambitious because uh, he's going to use that as a way to tell other countries uh, like Australia that here we go, this is what uh, we're doing. And, you know, him hosting this, it's before uh, Glasgow at the end of the year, um, is him wanting to be a key player uh, in this. So he's taking climate incredibly seriously. He wants it to be a big part of his uh, legacy. And it's interesting to see who is invited to the summit. It includes, you know, Xi Jinping from China and Vladimir Putin is being very clear that we have huge disagreements with countries like China and Russia on human rights and on economic issues, but we're going to separate our climate and we want to get things done there, uh, regardless of how we feel about all these other issues. So I think it's going to be uh, a very uh, big deal that that summit. A twenty thirty target? Do you think is that the sort of thing you've got in mind that uh, he's going to announce a very ambitious twenty thirty target? Yeah, he's going to announce a twenty thirty target. Yeah, which could be perhaps a fifty percent a reduction by twenty thirty. That's what's being spoken about. That's what environmental groups uh, are hoping for. So yeah, it's going to be a relatively short term target. Really fascinating to see Australia sort of caught in this pincer between Boris Johnson and Joe Biden, um, you know, Australia's two kind of uh, closest strategic and cultural allies, uh, you know, very much pushing the world to faster action and Australia's been so divided on this. I don't know if you caught up with this story in the last 24 hours of Malcolm Turnbull uh, being dumped from the New South Wales government's climate economy uh, advisory committee that uh, Matt Keane, the environment minister, had set up. It had been through cabinet. Turnbull becomes a leader. I think he's now been dumped three times over climate, twice as, <laughs> twice as liberal leader. Oh, and uh, and now he's, now he's, he's had the favour of the, of, the, of the coalition cabinet room uh, in uh, New South Wales, hasn't even made it to his first meeting and uh, there's been a, a coalition backlash and, and he's gone again. So Yes, it's extraordinary. You, you, you mentioned that climate's, uh, you know, a, a very much a, um, a flashpoint word in US politics as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, we don't want to underplay that. But uh, nonetheless, um, it looks like progress is going to be made there and um, Australia needs to uh, pull its finger out. Yeah, there will be some pressure. It's not like with Johnson's summit where he demanded to get an invite, you have to come with some big new commitment. That's why we didn't get invited to uh, Boris Johnson's summit. Biden hasn't made it contingent on anything, but he has said explicitly that I want this summit to be something that will spur more ambition from countries. And they're looking at Australia. They, they see us as an important uh, middle power in this, in this area. So it's a big change from the Trump era when this was not a factor Trump didn't really believe in climate change. He didn't uh, want to do anything about it. So that made life very easy for Australian leaders in that regard. Right now, yeah, we're going to get some more pushback 
from uh, the US on that issue. And indeed from our Pacific neighbours who will take some comfort from that pressure coming from above, as it were, for coming from the US to Australia. It's going to embolden those Pacific nations that are already disappointed with Australia's uh, lack of ambition in this space. So we'll watch that very closely. Matthew Not, it's been absolutely terrific talking to you again. You've been meshed in one of the most interesting series of stories that any journalist will get to cover. So um, it must have been a pretty wild ride. And how long have you got to go in your uh, posting there? The end of the year. Right. Yeah, the, the end of the year. So I think, uh, yeah, as, as exciting as it has been, I think particularly with the pandemic and borders being closed, it does make you uh, realise what's important when you literally can't get yes. home. Uh, so I think I'll be happy to come back to Australia at the end of the year. We'll be happy to see you uh, in the studio at some point rather than um, uh, via uh, this uh, this method. And uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us again on Democracy Sausage Extra. No worries at all. A pleasure. And that's Democracy Sausage Extra for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week. We have a very special guest, not unrelated to the discussion we've just been having about climate change policy in Australia and the politics around that. As a result of that uh, interview, it will be coming to you a bit later than normal coming out on Wednesday rather than the usual late Tuesday. So keep an eye out for that. I hope you don't mind the uh, break in the normal scheduling, but I hope you'll think think it's worth it uh, once you hear that uh, podcast. Bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.